Hello, and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host and TriDoc, Dr. Jeff Sankoff, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I want to thank everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. These are so very helpful in making the pod more visible and in getting the word out to prospective new listeners. Thank you also to everyone who has sent feedback and questions directly to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I have a great queue of some really fascinating questions to answer and a terrific lineup of interesting guests dropping by over the next few episodes. On today's show, I'm going to answer a question asked by several listeners about the merits of pneumatic compression boots. The makers of these devices do a phenomenal job of salesmanship and marketing, but is there any science to back up the hype? I will also be joined by Ryan Ignatz to discuss the science of sweat and how knowing what you are losing can inform how you should be hydrating and fueling during long training sessions and races. Finally, Janetta Iwanaki will be by for another episode of Reels for Wheels, our recommendations for appropriate movies to watch to make those hard trainer sessions fly by. That's a whole lot of goodness to pack into one podcast, so let's get our gear set up in transition and make our way to the start line. For an athlete to be able to train on a regular basis at fairly high intensity or for long duration, recovery is an incredibly important aspect of their routine. Recently, I have received several inquiries from listeners related to a tool that an increasing number of athletes are incorporating into their recovery program, pneumatic compression boots. Specifically, these listeners want to know, is there any evidence to support the use of these devices, and if so, how much benefit do they actually confer? First, Let's consider what these boots are, and then what the theory is behind their development for athletes. Pneumatic compression boots are long garments that are worn most commonly over the legs, although there are garments for the arms and hips as well. For now, though, I'm going to restrict this discussion to the compression boots. The garments contain air bladders, and each garment is connected to a device that inflates the bladder sequentially from the foot, progressing upwards to the thigh. There are several manufacturers of these devices on the market right now, but the two most popular in the sphere of triathlon are Normatec and Rapid Reboot. I won't go into too much detail about the devices themselves, but they are very similar, and I will post links to their websites in the show notes. Pneumatic compression garments have a pretty long history in the medical field and have been investigated for several indications. There are two, though, where they have shown the most promise in reducing leg swelling from various kinds of medical disease processes, and in preventing blood clots in the legs after surgery. For athletes, pneumatic compression garments have several theoretical benefits. These are in the reduction of muscular pain, improvements in muscle performance and flexibility, reduced swelling, and improved circulation. Now that's a lot of potential benefits, so you can see why these devices have captured the imagination of coaches and athletes not just in triathlon, but across major team sports as well. But is there any scientific evidence to support any of these claims? Well, I started my research by going to the websites of both Normatec and Rapid Reboot in the hopes of finding something there to back up their very impressive marketing. I'm going to score one here for Normatec because, to their credit, they at least listed four references on their site that they say back up their claims. Rapid Reboot, on the other hand, makes a whole lot of incredible statements about their product but has nothing on there to back any of what they say up, so you're kind of just going to have to take their word for it. But what did the Normatec studies actually say? Well, 
The first of them was a very small study that showed athletes who used a pneumatic compression garment after exercising could tolerate more pressure on their tired muscles than did those who did not use the pneumatic compression garments. The second study suggested that athletes who are able to do the splits are able to do them sooner if they use pneumatic compression garments first. The third study suggested that blood flow is improved after a session in the pneumatic compression garments in the limb that the garment was on. And the fourth study found a transient upregulation of some of the markers of protein synthesis, though it was unclear whether or not this translated into any measurable long-lasting effects. Now, after reading those references, and I read them, I have questions, and so should you. Because based on those four papers, I see nothing whatsoever to support any of the claims being made in support of pneumatic compression devices. None of these articles showed any measurable long-term effects, none of them showed any measurable improvements in either markers of recovery or performance, and none of them show anything particularly relevant to the triathlete. Fortunately, there is more research out there, and here's what I found. You'll recall that one of the theoretical benefits of these devices is in reducing muscle soreness after intense exercise, and that's what one of the Normatec studies tried to look at, but not in a really practical way. I found two other studies, one in ultrarunners that compared good old-fashioned massage therapy to pneumatic compression garments, and another that looked at the benefits of pneumatic compression garments in managing an experimental model of delayed-onset muscle soreness, or DOMS. The results here were mixed. In the study of the runners, massage therapy was better than compression boots in terms of reducing symptoms, but neither therapy was better with respect to recovery uh, or return to performance. In the DOM study, muscle swelling and pain was improved with pneumatic compression garments, but again, there was no improvement in performance measures. I also came across several studies that looked at blood levels of chemicals that indicate protein breakdown after intense exercise, and in those, pneumatic compression garments were found to be beneficial. That is to say, protein breakdown is less when these devices are used. But the macro effects of this, in other words, whether or not this has any clinical or relevant, you know, relevance to the triathlete is unclear. Finally, I came across a couple of studies that tried to assess the effects of pneumatic compression garments on performance, and in this the results were fairly clear. While pain and swelling are improved, performance simply does not change after using these devices. So where does that leave us? Well, there seems to be some good evidence that pneumatic compression garments can have some positive effects on potentially important aspects of recovery. They decrease muscle swelling and soreness, they improve circulatory flow, at least transiently, and there are transient alterations on markers of protein breakdown and synthesis. However, on the really important macro levels, there's no evidence at all that these devices positively impact either recovery or performance. Now, both Normatec and Rapid Reboot are privately held companies, so they don't release their sales figure, so I really have no idea at all how many units they are selling. What I will say, though, is that they have done a fine job of leveraging what evidence there is to make themselves a space in a crowded marketplace. And if you have ever spent any time in an Ironman village, you know how impressive these companies' marketing efforts are. Now, full disclosure, I own a pair of Normatecs, and I do like them. I paid full price for them a few years ago, and I have no relationship with the company at all. My own experience, though, is pretty much on par with what I have found on my research. After a session, my legs feel marginally better, but I can't say that I truly notice that they help me recover any faster, and I would never say that they make me perform any better than I would without them. So would I buy them or Rapid Reboots again? I guess at this point, I'd say that they're a luxury, and not something that you really need to have. 
If the price isn't an issue and you don't have huge expectations, it's definitely nice to sit back and read and have your legs be squeezed for a little while. But I can honestly say that they are by no means a must-have, and I wouldn't be too upset if you don't have a pair or can't afford one. I'll post links to all the references that I found in my research, including the ones that I found on the Normatech website, into the show notes. Do you have a medical or health-related question that you'd like me to answer? Well, send it to me. You can reach me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, and I will try to get you a response on the show. Managing nutrition and hydration is often thought of as the fourth discipline of triathlon. And, much like swimming, biking, and running, getting your fueling right takes training and a good understanding of what you actually need over the course of a race so that you can best know what exactly it is you need to be eating and drinking from before the horn sounds to the moment you cross the finish line. My guest today is an expert in this area and works to help athletes understand what their bodies are losing on an ongoing basis so that they can better plan on how to replace that on race day. Ryan Ignatz is a head sport scientist at Colorado Multisport in Boulder, Colorado, where he currently helps athletes of all levels safely accomplish their goals. He earned his bachelor's and master's degree in kinesiology and applied physiology. His master's focus was on predicting level time trial performance, which he obtained while under the guidance of Dr. Alan Lim, sports physiologist to the world's top cycling teams. Additionally, Ryan has coached endurance sports athletes of all levels and disciplines while personally competing in endurance sports at a professional level. To round out Orion's knowledge of the body and its potential, he taught anatomy and physiology at the University of Colorado at Boulder and is a highly regarded bike fitter to some of the best athletes in the world. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, I have a ton of questions for you. Uh, this is something that uh, pretty much every triathlete I know of uh, deals with on an ongoing basis. Uh, I think uh, a good place to start is uh, what are the most common mistakes that you see in triathletes when it comes to fueling and hydration? Yeah, uh, great question. Now that I've worked with lots of athletes, especially on this nutrition side of things, uh, through the, the testing we do here at um, I'd say I see um, see this at all levels, but most common issues probably are lack of uh, enough sodium intake, um, both in everyday life and even in, in uh, hydration practices. But also I see even more through the winter time that people don't often uh, associate the right kind of hydration, meaning more sodium intake during their uh, during their training, uh, like on a trainer, indoor trainer, or at the gym, or doing their, their uh, runs on the treadmill, that kind of thing. They tend to just drink water. And how does that lack of sodium tend to manifest itself, and how does that impact a triathlete's ability to train and perform? Um, I think of it in a couple of ways. Uh, one being that just their general uh, losses uh, of sodium during the actual activity uh, need to get replenished. Uh, that'll help with both recovery. So that's probably one of the main things that we start to see with indoor training in the winters, that they have this slow, steady decline in overall sodium intake. And uh, we start to see uh, hydration status slash recovery time start to be longer, uh, which nobody wants a longer recovery time. But also from a performance standpoint, 
we see that people's um, uh, plasma volume isn't quite as high, so they're just not getting as much out of out of their body when they're trying to perform during some of their more intense or their longer workouts. Those are probably the main things that we would see. So, Ryan, given that sodium seems to be a big issue for a lot of athletes, how can athletes be smarter about how they fuel and hydrate? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one thing as it relates to uh, how they fuel and hydrate is listening to your body. So one aspect to listening to your body is, is uh, the, the form of a craving. So let's say you do a hard workout and, uh, or a long workout and you've depleted some of your sodium stores. Um, maybe some of that was that you weren't actually uh, ingesting much sodium during your activity so that the depletion was greater in this case. Um, at the end of that workout, more than likely, you're going to have a craving for saltier food. So most people can attest, you know, after they've done a long race, that sometimes that salty uh, food options tend to be uh, what they crave. So uh, listening to your body is a great place to start. Um, the next place would definitely be some trial and error, which often people do, especially when we start dealing with longer distance athletes like Ironman triathletes or even half Ironman, where they might start to fall apart in a race. Um, so that's a, a possibility that one, maybe they just didn't have enough carbohydrate around, but more likely we see that, uh, that it's actually a, a limit to how much sodium they have. So they're actually dehydrating themselves prematurely. Um, so sometimes they'll up that intake and for the next uh, potential race that they have on tap, they might be an improvement. Um, or maybe through their training when they up their sodium store. So, so trial and error is a, a second option. I'd say the third option, uh, which is probably the this is where uh, the testing that I do uh, is really important um, and definitely lends itself to being a, a faster way to get a result is to actually test what your sodium uh, losses are in your sweat. So when you're working out, each individual is losing uh, sweat, which in, uh, as you lose that sweat, uh, there's actually sodium associated with it. And so then in that case, you're losing uh, sodium. So that needs to get replenished. And we can tell you how much sodium to replenish um, as you work out. So. so tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, tell me about the science of sweat testing, how it works, uh, what you're actually looking for, and then how you use it to actually prescribe a hydration or nutrition plan for a triathlete. Yeah, so um, in the past, uh, you know, Gatorade uh, Institute of Sport, they've, um, they've been doing sweat, I guess, composition testing for a long time where basically uh, you, you go into the lab, you sit on a bike or get on a treadmill, and you work out for you know, about an hour at whatever intensity and then whatever um, conditions that they have in the lab. And then they are constantly monitoring, one, how much fluid you lose, and then how much sodium you've lost in that fluid. So uh, it's a pretty cumbersome process in that they're actually um, like basically collecting all the sweat that's coming out of your body and then putting it through an analyzer and um, basically pulling out all the sodium and then, then analyzing how much sodium you've lost, which, uh, again, is pretty cumbersome. Cumbersome, so, cumbersome and maybe a little bit disgusting for the person doing the collecting. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
For sure. So uh, there's newer methodology, um, especially in the sport world. It was a, a machine that's actually uh, comes from a company uh, in Utah who, um, that was used in the cystic fibrosis world. And so that machine stimulates the sweat gland to sweat. Then we analyze the composition of sodium from that sweat. Um, what's cool about that technology is that it's non-exercise oriented. And so you can actually have a client sit down and within 20 minutes basically understand what the composition of sodium losses are in an in individual sweat. So uh, then you can start creating a nutrition strategy or hydration strategy that they can start implementing right then and there. And uh, you can also look back in, in time, you know, look at what they have done and start to figure out based on some of their perceptions and their feelings of an event or whatever, you can actually maybe pinpoint, was it just a lack of drinking? Was it too much carbohydrate or was it a lack of sodium coming in? So it's cool that we can actually uh, take a look at their past and be able to attribute um, once we have results, what's going on. And just to be clear, uh, the sweat gland is the sweat gland, uh, whether or not it's exercise or being stimulated by however it is the machine does it, the amount, yep. of, so the amount of sodium in the sweat is going to be the same. That's uh, mostly, mostly true. So there are, there are some other research ways to look at a sweat gland. One of them is uh, uh, using heat. So putting somebody in a sauna, for example, there is actually a different composition of sodium loss during heat, but when we look at the testing that we're doing, it tends to be very relatable, meaning uh, exercise is very similar to this induction-based uh, sweat composition testing. So, um, so yeah. So, in that case, yes, sweat gland is a sweat gland. And besides sodium, are there other electrolytes that are most important for athletes to consider, especially as the duration of the event gets longer? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I would say there can be potential for loss of some sodium and some, uh, uh, or sorry, uh, some potassium and some uh, uh, magnesium. Um, those ones, uh, the, the difference between those is that the, the serum or the, the blood um, uh, level of those particular electrolytes tends to be pretty consistent and very low as a comparison to sodium because they're intracellular electrolytes so they tend to be stored more internally in the cells so they tend to not get used up quite the same way um, yeah and, and uh, most of the time we we reflect more on diet and intake of, of uh, potassium and magnesium uh, versus during uh, working out so so safe to say that during an event, you don't really need to focus on some of these other electrolytes. Sodium is really the one you need to focus on the most. Yeah, that's definitely the key player and the one that's uh, more readily, um, uh, I guess, lost or depleted. So we often hear about hyponatremia, which is loss of sodium, uh, or uh, you know can come about from taking in hypotonic fluid, so taking in too much water and not enough sodium. Um, but 
is it possible to take in the opposite where someone's taking, you know, so focused on salt that they're just taking in lots and lots of salt and not taking in enough water? Uh, we encounter that in my uh, realm of work in the emergency department. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, is it possible for athletes to do that? And if so, what what might that look like? Yeah, um, actually, I, uh, a quick story about that. Um, and, and I'll help answer the question, but um, I did have an athlete who's uh, been at this sport for 20-something years, almost 30 years at an elite level, is one of the best triathletes in the world, has set a lot of records, uh, and was going to Kona, um, had a poor experience, one of the first Konas, um, and basically was uh, having a lot of weird crampiness, and uh, his just body wasn't functioning going into the race. Um, so turns out he was ingesting, he, he had learned his lesson the first Kona because he wasn't taking enough sodium. So he just upped it a lot, and meaning the days leading into the race, uh, when his training volume had, had dropped off significantly, he was uh, taking a pretty high concentration of electrolytes um, daily for about the yeah. week leading in. And by the time I think he got to race day, he had so much, uh, like had that... Uh, 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 excess amount of sodium in his bloodstream, and he just uh, was having some some issues from uh, just a, a muscle activity standpoint. And so he, he ended up uh, having a really bad day and dropping out. So uh, he came in for a test, and we found that, uh, one, he was pretty close on track with his new strategy for during the race, with his new increase in electrolyte content. So that was not the issue. It was that he was prehydrating with too much sodium around, yeah. especially since his, his needs, since he wasn't sweating as much because he wasn't training very much at that point, had gone way down. So, uh, so most of the time, though, we see when you're working out, if you have too much sodium around, we tend to see that um, uh, water tends to pool then in the gut, um, maybe even slows gastric emptying. So it's, uh, you're basically not absorbing a lot of that fluid. So we'll get some of that distended belly, maybe that sloshiness in the belly. And uh, uh, that's usually the, the main symptomatic thing that we might see. But if you just let it sit for a little bit and, and uh, reduce the amount of sodium coming in, then uh, it tends to go away and uh, doesn't become much of an issue. And I think, you know, you raise a really uh, important point. I have heard so many times from so many people this concept of topping up your hydration or topping up your sodium stores leading up to an event. And, you know, you, you can't fool your kidneys. Your kidneys are the masters <laughs> of maintaining what's called normostasis or really just making sure yeah. that the internal environment stays at a steady state. And all right. that extra salt, you're just going to pee it out. All that extra water. Water, you are going to pee it out. So, yeah, you yeah. can get to a race in sort of, you know, peak form, which is, you know, uh, as hydrated as you want to be and as, as much sodium as you should be normally. But you're never going to be able to store extra water or extra salt. You're just going to run into the kinds of problems like you just described. And, yeah. and I would add to what you're saying, um, not only will you pool water in the gut if you have too much salt, but if you start absorbing that salt, 
your body is going to tell you by craving water and you're going to get thirsty. Yeah, totally. So it's another, it's another good example of listening to your body. If you're in a race and you're feeling thirsty, it's your body telling you that you have a water deficiency. Uh, you might have a salt deficiency too, but you definitely have a water deficiency once the thirst yeah. center gets involved. That's right. Totally. So, yeah. um, I'd love to, to finish up with, uh, uh, another real softball question for you. Not, nice. <laughs> uh, what, what three pieces of advice would you give to the triathlete who's struggling with fluids and nutrition in order to get things going in the right direction? If you can try to find some kind of, uh, testing out there, there's different, uh, and mainly testing for your, your sodium levels. That's a great place to start because hydration usually trumps even sometimes the uh, the caloric side of, of the equation, which which is what most people contribute to nutrition in the world of, of athletics or endurance performance. So it is definitely more understood that uh, that hydration status actually is is probably even more important uh, these days. So um, so getting some kind of test, whether it's an online test where they send you a patch and you put that patch on. And then you send it back to a lab and they'll analyze it for you. Uh, or ideally, if you can come to a, a place like ours that has um, uh, one of these testing uh, machines uh, that allows you to really um, and very accurately and quickly figure out what your sodium concentrations are. I think that's a great place to start. Otherwise, uh, documenting what you're doing, um, keeping notes, I think, is really important and knowing how you feel. Uh, making sure that uh, what your strategy is uh, currently, making changes, and uh, and trying to get a, a feel for how your body responds to those changes. I think that's a great place to uh, that anybody can do, whether they have a testing area in their location or not. And definitely do some sweat rate testing, which is how much fluid you're physically losing. So uh, you can look that up uh, on the internet it's everywhere. But basically just uh, some pre and post weighing to tell you what your fluid uh, losses are, which helps you with how much hydration you should be then consuming. So those would be some great ways to start. That's uh, really helpful. Thanks very much, Ryan. And thank you so much yeah. for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking your time to, uh, uh, awesome. yeah, to give some great advice uh, to athletes out there. Ryan Ignatz is a head uh, sports scientist at Colorado Multisport in Boulder, Colorado, and he joined us today from work, and uh, I thank him once again. Multiple Ironman triathlete Janetta Iwanaki is here with me now, and that can only mean that it's time for Reels for Wheels, a discussion of movies to enjoy while sweating time in the saddle on the trainer. Welcome once again, Janetta, to the TriDoc Podcast. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you here with me in the friendly confines of Casa J.P. Morgan Chase, and to begin anew our contemplation of some of the better products that the film industry has so kindly put forward in the name of easing a triathlete's trainer riding time. What have you got for us today? Uh, so today I thought I would change tact a little bit and talk about a different kind of movie than what we've talked about so far. Um, so far, I've mostly talked about action movies. Um, I've talked a little bit how much I like the world building and things that are engrossing um, without necessarily requiring a lot of brain power. But not every trainer ride needs that kind of movie. Um, so today I was going to talk about Creed, um, which is a little bit uh, different. 
So I guess to some extent it does still have action. Uh, I can't say it's doesn't have that, but it's a little bit of a different pace. Um, and, you know, certainly it's uh, not a traditional action movie. Um, that being said, it's a sports movie, which is, I feel like, always a good match with riding the trainer. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I um, I really, really was surprised. I, I uh, had given up on the Rocky films a long time ago, and when that movie came out, I was um, sort of resistant to watching mm-hmm. it, but I did watch it, and uh, I watched it on the trainer. <laughs> so Same. Yeah. First time I saw it, it was on the trainer, and I was pleasantly surprised. It was so engrossing. The acting was phenomenal. Um, the storyline was really engaging without necessarily being uh, overly taxing. Um, and for me, I have to say, like, it was the perfect ride for long sort of race pace intervals because it's got that sort of steady intensity to it, um, particularly with the training scenes. And I'm not going to lie, I cried a little bit during... Yeah, it did get dusty. Yeah, it did get <laughs> got dusty. Got a little dusty yeah. in my trainer room yeah. when Rocky got diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, just being able to kind of, like, go through, um, you know, Creed's training and, like, kind of that that whole line, you know, one step at a time, one punch at a time, one round at a time, really stuck in my head. And I found myself thinking about that on races more than one time. Right, let's go to work. Up there. Yep. Go ahead. One step at a time, one punch at a time, one round at a time, one step at a time, one punch at a time, one round at a time. Come right. on, let's go. Fast, pop it fast. Boom, boom, bah. Good. I want you to let it all out. Hey, everyone's ever disrespected. You see them. Anything you ever want. Go after it. Bow. Now you should make a statement. What is it? One round at a time. I think the thing that really kind of made this movie uh, as, you know, frenetic as as it was, was the cinematography and the way the fight scenes were shot. Previously, um, you know, Rocky, the Rocky films were, were done in a way that was exciting, but they were exciting in that the, the fights were, I mean, ridiculous. I mean, the, the yeah. punishment that Rocky, you know, was, was, was seen to take was just ridiculous. And here, I mean, you're, the camera was in the ring over Absolutely. the shoulder of the fighters. And I mean, you really saw the brutality of boxing, which, I mean, boxing is not a sport that I follow. It's not a sport that I think is particularly, you know, something that I would ever want to be involved with. Uh, but yeah. you could appreciate boxing as an actual sport. You could see the, I mean, it's not just a matter of being able to be punched, but a matter of, of avoiding being punched. And, and you could see a lot more of the sport of boxing yeah. in this movie because of the way it was filmed. Yeah, I think just the uh, that kinetic nature of that cinematography really pulls you in. And I think... 
Um, it sort of gets you in that headspace, too, of what it's like to be in that competition, kind of under the gun. And it gives you that feel, too, that, like, these are not, like, one-punch knockout fights. Like, these fights are brutal endurance events in a way that I don't know that I'd appreciated before. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and like you said, the acting, the storytelling was really terrific and uh, nuanced, I think. You know, yeah. you, you, got, you got a view of Sylvester Stallone's character that I don't think you saw in a lot of the other films. And, and, and yeah, I agree. It was really well done and a, and a, a great suggestion. I, I enjoyed that movie very yeah. much. So I, I'm going to stick with uh, kind of the same genre as we've had in the past. Uh, my selection for this episode is uh, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. Classic. Yeah, I'm a huge Tarantino fan, and I can pretty much watch any of his movies on or off the trainer multiple times. And so I knew I had to get one of his movies in for this segment at some point. Um, I toyed with Inglorious Bastards as my choice because I think mm. that's probably my favorite of his. Uh, there are several scenes in that movie that my heart rate will be very high yeah. <laughs> just because of the suspenseful <laughs> nature of the dialogue. I think that Tarantino's, you know, his dialogue skills are just beyond the par. I mean, there's yeah. nobody else that really comes close to that. But Kill Bill is a great example of where he just gets action. Uh, yeah. You know, he just really does that well. Uh, this is the movie in which Uma Thurman plays the vengeful bride. She's awakened from a four-year coma, hell-bent on paying back the former colleagues who left her for dead. The action is fast and furious. The body count is pretty much through the roof, especially in the climactic scene where Thurman's character has to fight through Lucy Liu's crazy 88 bodyguards. Um, the violence and gore is, again, cartoonish, uh, similar to what we've talked about in the past, but the choreography is spectacular. The cinematography and the music is simply outstanding. And like in any of Tarantino's movies, really the scenery and the music play a role just as much as the actors do. Absolutely. And yeah, and and I love this movie for longer steady state or tempo rides, but although it can be great for uh, intervals as well. Mm -hmm. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention volume two, which is also a great film. If, if for nothing else, just for the description of Pi Maze, five finger <laughs> exploding heart punch. Yes. <laughs> but um, I think volume two lacks the continuous up-tempo pace that the first film has. And mm -hmm. so that's why I really think of uh, Kill Bill volume one yeah. being my selection for this episode's Real for Wheels. Yeah. And I, uh, the number of times I've watched it either on the trainer or on the treadmill has been really high. There's just something about that the pace of the first one that just fits a little better with that. And I think, um, you know, it's got those vignettes, which is a very Tarantino thing to do. Um, but I think that sort of ties it together really well, where you like your focus of attention only has to be there for 15 or 20 minutes, um, which I find really useful when my brain's a little tired from working really hard. Yeah, and, and his reverence for you know, the Japanese samurai mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the, that kind of kung fu action film. Yeah. It, it comes through. And, yeah. I mean, his cartoonish villains, Go-Go, oh, yeah. uh, with her uh, spiky ball on a chain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, Lucy Liu's character is phenomenal. Uh, they're, they're all great. And, and uh, the, the scene with uh, Vivica Fox's uh, mother assassin oh, yeah. at the beginning yeah. uh, of her reign of terror... I just, just a wonder. I just like I just love this movie. It's it is amongst his 
better films. I mean, he's done what ten now, nine or ten. Like and yeah. uh, I mean, I, I could go through all of them, and I think I would have a hard time really teasing which one's my favorite. This yeah. one's definitely up there in terms of the yeah. better action films. It's not my intention to do this in front of you. For that, I'm sorry. But you can take my word for it. Your mother had it coming. too as a pop culture nerd I love the fact that every time I watch it I catch different things that are different references or different bits and pieces that sort of you know are really fascinating granted part of that's probably because I'm not always paying perfect attention to it while I'm riding my trainer but um, I love the fact that every time I watch it I get something new out of it yeah and and the nice thing is is his movies hold up you know they, yeah, yeah. they he I think he's done a good job of not putting too many references in the movie that you need to be timely about it. He, he definitely yeah. seems to. You can watch like I watched uh, Jackie Brown not too long ago, mm-hmm. and uh, that movie really held up. And I, yeah. I think I think he does a good job of things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's great. We've got two new selections for you. Hopefully, that'll get you through to the next episode. And uh, Janetta will be back then. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. And that brings me to the end of another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe and consider leaving a rating and a review. If you didn't, let me know. I'm always looking for ways to make the show better. You can reach me with your comments or questions for consideration to be answered on the show at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Links to everything I discussed today can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. There, you can also find where to see posts by me and my guests on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you'll consider following. Music at the beginning and end of the podcast is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many more like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back with another episode soon, featuring an answer to another listener question, an interview with triathlon pro and gender equity advocate Maddie Pesch, and more Reels for Wheels. Until then, train hard, train healthy.